Judith Myers, Myers. Row 18, plot 20. Hmm. Yeah, you know, you know every town is something like this happen. I remember over in Russellville, old Charlie Bold, about 15 years ago. One night, he, he finished dinner, and he, he excused himself from the table, and he went out to the garage, and he got himself a hacksaw. And then he went back into the house, and he kissed his wife and his two children goodbye, and then he proceeded... Where are we? Uh, huh? Oh, uh, it's uh, right over here. Yeah, Myers, Judith Myers, I remember her. Couldn't believe it. Such a young boy. Larry, you lost? Why do they do it? Goddamn kids. They'd do anything for Halloween. Today's fandom, the one and only John Carpenter's Halloween. The original. We're not talking about anything else tonight. Just the original. Part one. The night he came home. Classic horror movie. Per this recording, 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. One of the all-time greatest. I wouldn't even say horror movies. For me, one of the all-time greatest movies of all time. It's kind of a a genre-bending film, if you think about it. I mean... Yeah, it's steeped in horror, but it's it's a thriller. It's suspenseful. So yeah, I mean, there there. I, I guess that is one trait of a, a of a good movie in general is that it, it would transcend its its genre. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's what we're talking about today. We got the movie playing in the background as we talk. And a, a quick synopsis for no for those of you who don't know, kind of goes like this: Fifteen years after murdering his sister on Halloween night in nineteen sixty three. Michael Myers escapes from a mental hospital and returns to the small town of Haddonfield to kill again. Haddonfield, Illinois, totally fictitious town, based off of one of the actresses, or no, not the actress, I'm sorry, one of the script assistants' hometowns, Haddonfield, New Jersey. So they used the name Haddonfield. Obviously, they didn't use any any other remnants of New Jersey other than the name. And then they based it on Illinois, very, very colorful during the fall. Yeah. And they tried to mimic that on screen, although... <laughs> For, we're from Illinois, yeah. so we we know firsthand that it's what you see on the screen is not necessarily uh, in Illinois. Many would like that to be, but no, it's, it's not even close. I found it interesting listening to the interviews and things like that when it comes to uh, the production of the movie and the look and feel of it. You do have, you know, you you obviously have leaves. They used three giant garbage bags of painted leaves. <laughs> That they had to keep recollecting throughout the movie. They were bona fide props because they don't have those kinds of trees in California, which is where most of this was shot. Yeah, because I mean, if you watch, if you're watching this movie, you're watching it right now, and it's it's dark, but you can see so many of these trees are. Uh... There's a lot of green leaves on these trees. A lot of green leaves. Yeah, for us being from Illinois, it, that's a dead giveaway that it is clearly not fall. But you know what? They made a good point. In one of the interviews, they make a good point about the scenery. And although there's a lot of greenery going on, just that little bit of fall, whether it be the, the pumpkins or it being nighttime, the leaves, combination of those things, it's enough to trick the audience. Yeah. You know, I... I'm I'm sitting here talking like, 
like I'm like I'm a fucking super aficionado, which I mean, don't get me wrong, we're huge fans of the film, but the first time I saw this, the first shit, the first five, ten times I saw this, I was a little kid. Yeah. Tricked me, so I was I was Michael's age at the beginning of this movie. I was six when uh, when I first saw Halloween and I didn't realize until my teenage years that Haddonfield wasn't even real. So, yeah, you can say you tricked a little kid, but, you know, I'm still an audience member, and, and I didn't realize it until almost 10 years later that not only is this is not in Illinois in fall, but it's not even a real town. Not even a real <laughs> town. And there are some shots in the movie that uh, it, you have to pay really close attention, but you, you do see palm trees off in the distance, yeah. which are not native to Illinois. So Unfortunately or not. Unfortunately. <laughs> A little bit of the the technical side of things here. Their original budget was an estimated $300,000, which by today's standards is a drop in the in a bucket, basically. Three hundred grand is a much. No, it's not it's much. That was a low budget. Originally, when they sought money for this budget, they were worried they weren't going to get it. And they got on the phone to procure this, this money for this budget. They basically had to worry for nothing. When they approached Erwin Yablons about financing the money, they, as in John Carpenter and Mustafa Akkad, were kind of leery about asking for this amount of money for this kind of a movie. But at the time, Yablance was embroiled in a project that was costing him roughly $300,000 a day. So this was re- literally chump change for him. So they, you know, they mustered up the courage to, to ask for their $300,000 thinking it was a ton of money. He immediately was like, yes, let's let's do this because $300,000 wasn't pretty much shit to him. That's That's how the budget came to be. Half of that budget ended up going to Panavision cameras so that the film would have uh, a certain scope. And then, of course, you had, out of the entire cast, you had Donald Pleasance garnering a whole 20 grand for five weeks of work, which that wasn't peanuts back then in, in the way of like, paying the cast off. So there you go. The movie went on to, to gross roughly $47 million at the U.S. box office. In, in today's money, in 2018 money, that's the equivalent of about 100 80 million dollars back then that that amount of money made it one of the most successful independent films of all time not just horror folks completely yeah it would end up grossing a worldwide gross cumulatively speaking of over 70 million dollars and although there's only really one cut of the film which runs about 91 minutes there is sort of an extended version that was made for television that runs about 101 minute correct me if i'm wrong but it's what two just two extended scenes two extended scenes both featuring dr loomis one in which he is talking to michael myers a young michael myers telling him that his time is has come with him that it's kind of think of the the scene from the 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 rob zombie halloween where he tells Michael it's over. That's basically that, only a, as a kid. And in another scene where he is, he's pleading with the, the board at uh, Smith's Grove to that maximum security is what's needed for, for Michael Myers. So more more or less dialogue. There there was one thing though, the movie, or excuse me, the, the home, the, the, sorry, the television version does have a, it does allude to the fact that he is related to Laurie Strode okay. in, in the television version. Now, and keep in mind, that's not done in the theatrical version. 
wasn't necessarily meant to be what it became. These extended scenes for the television version were actually shot during filming of the sequel. Yeah. Which, Which would, would make sense to why they, they did what they did. With exactly. And of course, Dr. Loomis is played by Donald Pleasance. You have the lead female, Laurie Strode, being played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who is the daughter. Laurie Strode, who is played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who is actually the daughter of Janet Leigh, who starred in the original Psycho from 1960, yes. Alfred Hitchcock's this Psycho. Was, this, this hire was actually... Uh, intentional. Intentional, and John Carpenter saw that as paying tribute to Hitchcock by hiring her daughter. Hiring her daughter. And actually, when they were doing her audition, they actually made her take a, a photo shoot where she was doing, like, promotional shots. Yeah. In the, just almost in the same shot as her mother was in Psycho, to kind of give the comparison there. It's it's crazy, too, because Jamie Lee Curtis was so disappointed in, in that, uh, in her performance, her tryout, her audition, if you will. She actually thought that this was it for her. Like, she wasn't going to be an actress at all and she got the call from john carpenter thinking like this is it i'm i'm done ironically enough for her it was congratulations uh we got everything we needed uh you know we'll be we'll be filming soon <laughs> so <laughs> this this was her first feature film yeah which that was news to me when i first found out because she does a hell of a job she was reportedly paid about eight thousand dollars for her role here in in halloween accounting for inflation that's a little over thirty thousand dollars in today's today's money in 2018 money so still really low still really low <laughs> yeah as, as crazy mean, as that sounds Thirty thousand when it comes to Hollywood, and she didn't even like horror movies. I, yeah, ironically enough, Jamie Lee Curtis, who became a star, in my opinion, by horror movies, you know, Halloween, Prom Night, say you know, to say a few. She hates. She I don't. She's even used the term hate when it came to to horror movies. I remember watching a documentary where she's doing some conventions, and she's she's doing it for some kind of charity. I, I think it was like a humane society charity. She's doing all these paid meet and greets, and she just. The entire interviews of her doing this, it's, I don't, I don't get why people get into this stuff. Like, she even used the term crap. (laughs) 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 And, you know, I mean, to each their own, you're entitled to your opinion, but I mean, it, her mother is remembered for, for Psycho. I'm not too keen on Janet Lee as a actress, but I know that was a key role for her. And for her, Halloween, for for Jamie Lee Curtis, Halloween is the key role for her. To this day, she's synonymous with Laurie Strode, I don't know how you can say I don't I don't like this genre, <laughs> but hey, you know she's entitled to her opinion. This is it is to say it's ironic is is an understatement. Very true. And then you have P.J. Souls playing Linda. Whatever happened to P.J. Souls? You familiar with that song? <laughs> no? no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just gonna say she she stopped being you know super young because that's that's really what she was. She was like that typical 1970s teenager, and she's the exact same character from Carrie, just with a different name. And that's how she actually got noticed for this project. Um, Makes sense. After they saw her in Carrie, they they wanted to hire her. They figured she would be perfect for for one of the parts. Totally. <laughs> and, <laughs> See what I did there? Yes. Uh, for those of you who don't know, 
during the audition process, apparently all of the actresses that went for the role of Linda would not say the word totally like John Carpenter heard it in his head. The only person to do that was PJ Souls, and that's what landed her the role. And she says it like a crazy amount of time. <laughs> hey, isn't that Devon Graham? I don't think so. I think he's cute. Hey, jerk! Speed kills! Joke? You know, Annie, someday you're gonna get us all into deep trouble. Totally. You have Charles Cyphers playing Bracket, Kyle Richards playing Lindsay, Brian Andrews playing Tommy, John Michael Graham playing Bob, Nancy Stevens playing Marion, Mickey Yablons playing Richie, Brent LePage playing Lonnie, Tony Moran playing 20-year-old Michael Myers, 23-year-old Michael Myers, Will Sandin playing the little six-year-old Michael Myers. Will Sandin actually went on to be a Los Angeles police officer. Oh. That's kind of interesting. Sandy Johnson playing Judith Myers. Peter Griffith playing Lori's dad. And then I'm going to, this this is going to have an asterisk here. Nick Castle as the shape. In, in the script, the shape is essentially Michael Myers when he has a mask on. Because as they wrote the script, they didn't know exactly what they were getting into in the way of appearance. So that's a reason for, uh, at least one of the reasons for the asterisk here. The other reason is... You had multiple people playing Michael Myers with a mask on right. throughout the, the production of this film. Part of it was because some of the actors were only available on certain days. And then the other part of it, too, was certain things... Like, there were criteria for some of the scenes. There's a scene where masked Michael Myers, or the shape, busts a... I believe it's a car window with his his hand, his yeah. forearm. Right. What they did for the shot was they took a wrench and affixed it to his, his arm, spray-painted it flesh-toned so that it hit it from the camera. But they used Tommy Wallace, who was uh, one of the production crew, yeah. as Michael Myers to do that scene because he was one of the only people on set that knew just how much pressure needed to be put on that window in order for it to break because he, he was responsible for those duties during production. So it only made sense for him to do it. Seems like to be a lot of a lot of people played Michael Myers, not only just as the shape, but then you have your two unmasked actors that played Michael Myers. And then even technically, Deborah Hill played Michael Myers. She played a six-year-old Michael Myers in first-person point-of-view scenes. Because Will Sandin wasn't available yeah, for, to, so, for like the last day. I yeah, to the last day of shooting. So they actually, the scenes where you see, you think you're seeing a child's hands <laughs> are actually Deborah Hill's hands. Look closely, too, and you, you can see that they're definitely Yeah, yeah, <laughs> pay, att- yeah pay attention to her, her fingernails. Yeah. <laughs> and you can tell they're, they're pretty well manicured for being a six-year-old boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, even, even Deborah, My- uh, Deborah Myers, Deborah Hill got into the uh, Michael Myers head, if you will, and portrayed, portrayed our famous... Killer. John Carpenter actually approached both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee to play the role of Dr. Sam Loomis that eventually, obviously, 
who was who was played by Donald Pleasance, and both of those guys turned him down because of the amount of pay associated with the gig. You know, I'm I'm sure that's all too common in Hollywood, especially these days. But Christopher Lee, out of those two guys, was the only one to come out and say that was probably one of the biggest mistakes he had ever made in his career that he did not take the role. You're familiar with Christopher Lee from at least Star Wars uh, movies. How how much of a difference do you think it would be if we had Christopher Lee helming the role of Doctor Loomis? Man, you have I I don't know I'm, I'm I'm picturing right now and I really I really like that. I love Donald Pleasance and it's so it's so hard to me because I I love Loomis. He's he's like that crazy old bastard that nobody believes until it's too late. <laughs> and he plays it so well, but yeah, Christopher Lee is such a, a terrific actor. I, I would love to have seen what he could have offered to the character, but it's one of those things that in, in, in hindsight, I just it's hard for me to picture anybody else other than Donald Pleasance. Very true. It, it definitely would have had a different feel if, yeah. it were, if it were Christopher Lee. Looking back on it now, I'm sure n- neither one of us would have necessarily caught that or, or noticed the difference yeah. if we were, you know, back being being young and watching this for one of the first times. But now, after watching live, I, I I totally forgot about the scene. It's the scene where uh, Linda, Andy, Annie, and Lori are walking home from school. You talk about some low budget camera work probably dealing with uh, more of an amateurish group here you just there's parts where you can totally see them in the shot <laughs> as they're walking down <laughs> you can see somebody's shirt <laughs> in in the shot and uh i'm glad they didn't they didn't take it out they didn't cut it out i mean at this point you can totally cut it out no problem it's just a nice reminder of just how low budget this great film is as we get to one of my favorite scenes where michael myers at the uh at the hedges standing just watching <laughs> Even knowing what's going to happen, it's still, it's like, fuck. No. <laughs> Look, Andy's got more balls than I do, because I'd be like, eh, well, we're just going to walk across the street then. <laughs> As we see uh, Lori, too, with her uh, J.C. Penny attire, another low-budget cut there, too. There is no... No costume here. Everyone everyone bought their own stuff. Everyone bought their own stuff. <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis spent less than $100 for all of her clothes. For yeah, I had shows. <laughs> <laughs> Shop on clearance. And, you know, I was, a, I was a little kid when this first came out. I, I was born in 1978, November of 1978. But the first time I watched it, I was, I was a little kid. I was mm. probably like three, maybe four years old. I know that's probably uh, horrible parenting 
Yeah, I wasn't much older. So. <laughs> but I, I, as far as the the wardrobe goes and stuff, I I definitely didn't bat an eye. I I couldn't tell you whether whether or not it was appropriate or you know whether it was J.C. Penny clothes or not. Well, I mean, it's one of those movies that you don't need a costume department. I mean, it's it's it could just be wear casual clothes or, or whatever you would think a high school girl would wear in 1978. So uh, seeing that this was in 1978, it's it wasn't it wasn't far-fetched for them to come up with something like that so i mean it wasn't like that we're talking about something special times or anything like that it's it's just uh what well, should have been just a regular every day for laurie strode so it it makes total sense peter o'toole mel brooks stephen hill walter Matthau, jerry van dyke lawrence tierney kirk douglas john belushi lloyd bridges abe vagoda chris christopherson sterling hayden David Carradine, Dennis Hopper, Charles Napier, Yule Brenner, and Eddie Bunker were considered for the role of Dr. Sam Loomis. Now, I know not everybody's familiar with all of these actors, but I could tell you right now, I would be excited. I would have been excited to see Dennis Hopper as Dr. Loomis. I don't know why Walter Matthau. To, to me, Walter, I'm sorry. That face. Yeah, that face. <laughs> He's always disgusted. I just immediately flash back to grumpy old men. <laughs> so do I. You know? And Dennis the Menace for me. So it's like, what the hell? Like, why would you want him <laughs> as, as Dr. Loomis? I couldn't imagine, like, Mel Brooks, too. Mel Brooks is always associated with, with comedy. Would he still have that mustache? I don't think it matters. <laughs> I really don't. Same with, you know, like, Chris Christopherson? Same same thing. I, I mean, not that he was associated with comedies, but I, I don't know. I don't I don't know how I feel about that. It would be interesting. Definitely not Ava Goda. Like, there's no way in hell I would want to see Ava Goda as Dr. Loomis. So in your opinion, is, is Donald Pleasance the right actor? I, I, and it's hard for me to ask and answer that question because, again, we're talking about somebody that, since we were little kids, we've associated with... T- Sam Loomis, but did they get it right? Was he the perfect pick out of out of those selections? I should say. I, I'm gonna say yes and no because again, I would love to have checked out Dennis Hopper. Yeah. Lawrence Tierney, who plays the head boss of the heist gang in Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. Him and his raspy voice. I, it would have been interesting to see him <laughs> play Doctor Loomis. Kirk Douglas too. I, I would have give, given yeah. Kirk Douglas a shot just to see. That would have been interesting. Definitely not John Belushi. <laughs> no, There's no way in hell. I'm sorry. He's gotta be like somebody's friend, you know, on there. To, to be, <laughs> hey, John can do it. No, 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 no. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank through the release, but like that was shortly after the release of Animal House, right? I, I believe so. Yeah. yeah. So coming off of that, and then <laughs> going into Halloween, yeah, yeah no, just, it just, yeah, it doesn't have the right, the right tone to it. Doctor Loomis was a sweet, uh, sweet ride here. Which was oh, the BMW, yes, yeah. 19, 77 BMW 320i Loomis rocking a Beamer. Well, he's 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 a he's a doctor. He is a doctor, yeah. so he's he's got to have the doctor right. I I agree with that one. He's uh he, this is the cemetery scene that we're on right now, and uh, this uh this guy is telling them all the story, and Loomis gives no cares in the world at all. 
<laughs> Originally, Dr. Loomis, again played by Donald Pleasance, was supposed to have a phone conversation with his wife. And Donald Pleasance wouldn't do it. And he cited the point of view that he thought the characters shouldn't have a family or a past. Kind of an interesting take on the position of a doctor. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, at least all the doctors I'm familiar with have some sort of family. And, and I guess it's one of those things like that shouldn't be that big of a deal. But this is also crazy Dr. Loomis who yeah. who has been who, who's had to deal with people like Michael Myers for the the bulk of his career so I guess it kind of makes sense well I think I think it, it works too because it's it's the add-on to the, of Michael Myers I mean you're talking 15 years with the guy the kid to, to a man and you know it just that that whole when, he, when he's telling that to Sheriff Brackett about his time with Michael Myers and describing who he is, you can totally see that in that scene alone that that Lewis is a broken man because of Michael Myers. The only thing in the world that he cares about is getting Michael Myers back to where he belongs, behind bars, you know, in in protection from what he can do to everybody else. And he's the only one that truly knows the monster that lives within Michael. And it totally makes sense that it would consume him. You know, if there was more time, if there was more than 91 minutes, and or maybe if they wanted to, maybe if they were planning sequels, which obviously at this point they weren't, that would be something that you could, you could branch on more too. It, but... For the time, you know, whether or not he had a family and, and it, it broke out. But for this particular case and in and, and this particular story setting, the whole idea of Halloween was the mystery behind Michael Myers. And that includes the ones that are affected by him. In this case, Samuel or Dr. Loomis. I totally, I, I, I agree. I actually agree with, with uh, Donald Pleasance that he doesn't need to have all that other stuff. His only focus in this entire movie is Michael Myers, and he is consumed by that. And it, I think that's where it makes his character stand out even more. Donald Pleasance only did five days of shooting for his 20 grand at the time. And he's only in the movie a little over 18 minutes. You want, you want to talk about actual doctor doctor numbers? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> that's not that's not bad. It's not a bad payday at all. For... You crazy old Loomis. You know what you're doing. <laughs> you know, out of all the female leads in this movie, because all the girls are supposed to be in high school, Jamie Lee Curtis was the only actual teenager at the time of shooting. You and I were talking before we started to record this podcast at how she kind of looks like the older of the bunch. I find that that, that a little interesting. Yeah, yeah she, she she looks the oldest. She sounds the oldest. I, she she plays that really well. And I, I guess she wasn't necessarily supposed to. She was, I mean, I know she's supposed to be the wholesome good girl, but it just it just seemed like she was like, out of the three, she was kind of like the, the mother figure. And... It doesn't help that her J.C. Penny selection was <laughs> was not up to par to what a young uh, girl would look like, I guess. You know, looking at, at Halloween, too, the, the movie itself really kind of set the, the tone to what a lot of, especially slasher films, what, what were built on. It was, it was really the first one of its kind, and, and John Carpenter talked about morality a lot in this, in the sense that you look at the, 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 the fact that you have the girl that is that survives this whole thing, the one that kills Michael, or presumes to kill Michael is deemed the most sexually frustrated in a sense. Everybody else that dies, they break what we now know is a deadly sin in horror movies. 
they have sex. You know, they they do drugs. Even though she did take a hit of a couple of hits of uh, of weed. Weed. Yeah, but uh, you know they they break they break rules. They break very simple rules in horror. It wasn't something that was done until until then. This was kind of the movie that started that whole presence of the the deadly sins of of horror. In the horror community, uh, that's that's uh, a notion that has been around for quite some time now associated with this film it's like pre-halloween and post-halloween yeah and that's how they define the genre at times i mean and, and wes craven paid homage to that in in scream when they were watching halloween at the party and he's jamie kennedy's character it was was describing those rules again while watching halloween so it was the it was the movie that started it all when it came to when it came to that and uh, so yeah it was in so many ways again we talk about halloween and how impactful it was in the, in the industry this is one of those other ways too whether or not that was the intention it, it sure as hell stuck that way you look at the 1980 friday the 13th that's what that movie was entirely based upon and that movie was inspired by the success of halloween so there you have it right there. Don't have sex and be in a horror movie. <laughs> Keep it in your pants and you might survive. Well, I mean, it makes sense. You have you have all these teenagers who are too busy trying to get laid. Yeah. One way or another. Some, some form or fashion. They're not paying attention to the news or any hearsay that's going on. I mean, they're clear, <laughs> their intentions are clear and, you know, they're pretty focused on that of course laurie strode is you know that is not her intention in this movie so of course she's going to be a little more in the know when it comes to the goings-on of, of the community there in haddonfield what do you feel about michael myers being called the boogeyman is he the boogeyman i tell you what if, if he's not the boogeyman he sure as hell is close e- even now uh, you and i are watching this now i yeah. guarantee you because it, uh, it's nighttime I, me personally i automatically associate the nighttime with boogeyman like figures just like michael myers every halloween that comes around you can't you can't help but feel that way if you're affected by characters like this yeah. For me, yes, he is a boogeyman. He he for all intent and purposes, he he fits all the criteria. What what seals the deal for me is just that he's like this unstoppable force of nature and no matter what you do to him, he just seems to come back. Yeah. You know, and you you know, watching this, obviously we're only talking about the the first movie here, yes, but yes. watching this movie, this movie in and of itself you see all of the things that he goes through. Obviously, that'll be watered down as as more sequels happen. But this this for this period of time when this movie was released and the situations that he's put into, he is superhuman. Wh- whether you like to admit that or not, but he is. He's superhuman, and you can't help but notice that. And by the end of this film, if you're not freaked out, then you're there. Maybe just the horror genre isn't for you. You should yeah. be. You should be very freaked out. Yeah, there, there's a lot to be said about the fact that and i'm i'm close to 30 years old now and i've seen this movie more times than i can count (laughs) to this day it it has such a strong hold on me because of him you know as we as we see him and uh tommy's looking out the window he's just seeing michael standing out there that that type of fear that he instills in me still i wholeheartedly agree he is 
here's what the boogeyman what what I've been preached with the boogeyman is he fits that criteria perfectly. Yeah, just one of those timeless characters that it just, ugh, just I'm I'm getting chills just just thinking about it. <laughs> the original script was titled The Babysitter Mur- Murders and had events taking place over the space of several days. And it was a budgetary decision to change the script to have everything happen on the same day. By doing this, it reduced the number of costume changes and locations required. And it was decided that Halloween, the scariest night of the year, was going to be the perfect night for this to happen. Pretty genius in the way of a, a criteria for making a movie. It just kind of looked out for them, you know. What a obviously no one ever wants to hear that their budget's been cut. It's it's awesome to see something like this play out in a positive manner. It definitely had a positive effect on on the script. Yeah, when you when you have a very small budget. You obviously got to think outside the box. Yeah, you're, for, you're forced to be creative. I, I love it. Yeah, yeah. It, it it's one of those things that just it just worked. It made sense. You were able to make sense out of it. Yeah, run with it, and they did. And they also kind of lucked out too when they went to go basically figure out if if any other movies had been titled Halloween. Uh, they lucked out. There were, believe it or not, there were no other movies at the time with uh, you know titled Halloween, and so they lucked out and they they ended up using it. Obviously, uh, we're sitting here talking about it, <laughs> but that was a hell of a hell of an idea. And and you can credit that to Erwin Yablon for introducing that concept. I mean, what better way to, to add creepiness to the situation of, of a babysitter or babysitters being murdered than to have it done on Halloween night? Originally, when they were writing this script, they were writing it in such a fashion kind of to mimic a radio play. And they wanted to scare people about every 10 minutes on screen. Did they accomplish that? You know what? I, I have never looked at it as a radio play. Yeah. And, and I, you know, just just knowing this now, or just, you know, just talking about this right now, I'm definitely going to go back and give it another view. That'll be interesting to see and time it. Yeah. Just to see how many times you get scared uh, and, and whether or not it happens every 10 minutes. Yeah. Another, another way that Halloween stands out is the fact that Michael Myers, he's driving. It's a very uncommon thing in which you have, the, in a slasher movie, in which you have the killer drive a vehicle. They always get there in some form, shape or form or another, but we never see them drive. I don't say never, but we rarely see them drive. So there's that. And there's also the the questions that I've always asked is how does Michael Myers know how to drive? He's been locked up since he was six years old. There there's a, a theory out there. When the the first movie was novelized, they actually came up with kind of a simple explanation. And whether you're a fan of this or not, it, it's out there. So here it goes. Every time Doctor Loomis drove Michael to sanity hearings over the years. Michael simply watched very closely and carefully as Dr. Loomis operated the car. Remember, even if Michael sat in the back seat and there was a screen of of bulletproof glass partitioned in between the the front bench seat and the back, Michael could still look over the doctor's shoulder without Loomis even realizing what he was doing or the significance of of his stare. True. So to me, that's, that's a common sense approach. That's a that's I, a fair. Yeah, I would buy that. Yeah. I would buy that. If I don't know, you're writing you're writing the script at the time. I don't, do you do you think that they just ignored that and said well, we don't have time to explain it or? I I think it's one of those was things it overlooked. I I think it's one of those things that was kind of overlooked, but it's also an assumption. You just assume that he's 
of age and that he's able to drive. Able to drive, so yeah. What I want to know is, you know, we earlier we talked about what I want to know is we talked about how this movie is kind of the like a significant mark in the horror genre. How you have like a notion out there that Halloween, there's like pre-Halloween and then post-Halloween. In the genre of horror. I wonder what got lost in translation with Michael Myers driving. How it, that situation became such a rarity that your your slasher or your your main bad guy just didn't drive. Yeah. I mean, that, that would be really interesting to find out through other fandoms out there. So do you have any uh, copies of... I know you're a big comic book collector. Do you, do you have Neutron Man or Tarantula Man? Do you have any of those? No, you know, those those books those books are actually non-existent. Neutron Man, Tarantula Man, all made up. The comic books you see in this film are actually back issues of Howard the Duck, which, <laughs> which I do not own. I love the 80s movie. Um, You're one of the few. Yeah, I'm one of the few. I love that movie. But no, I, I do not own any Howard the Duck back issues. I, I can't say that I'm, I'm a, an actual comic book fan of, of Howard the Duck. Uh, it's an interesting character, definitely. But uh, no, I don't own any. So we talked about the driving situation with Michael Myers. Another thing that... And I... I I hate to poke holes at one of my all-time favorite movies, but let's look at this, though. Three minutes, 54 seconds of the film, lights go off upstairs where Michael's sister and her boyfriend are. We all know what's going on up there. And the five-minute mark, he's coming downstairs. He's fully clothed, by the way, too. <laughs> coming downstairs, and, you know, she's like, you going to call me? He's, yeah, I'll call you. He's not going to call her. And... <laughs> Uh, that leaves a whopping one minute and six seconds for them to have slept together. And keep in mind, that's actually less time because he has to put clothes back on or at least zip something up. Yeah. You know what? I would, you know, if I was her, I wouldn't want him to call me back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're done here. Uh, no, I, that's, again, is that one of those things that's overlooked? Because that's just really, really bad timing there. You know what? No, I, I don't think that's overlooked at all. I, I think they hit that one right on the head. I mean, you have what are supposed to be high school teenagers. Believe it or not, that was a, a common, a common, not only a common situation socially, but also uh, just a, a, a common idea out there that it wasn't about, you know, long bouts of lovemaking. It was about getting getting what you can and being done with it, and that's it. Currently, you know, obviously we we live in a, a hell of a different life and time here in 2018, and and you know that, but that's always been frowned upon. That that type of sexual performance has always been frowned upon. Yeah. But in the way of of pop culture, especially in the horror genre, that's kind of always been a thing, especially in 80s movies. That just seemed to be commonplace. So I think they hit it on the head. I mean, he. <laughs> He's there for one reason and one reason only, <laughs> and you know he gets it. That's it. He's not. He's not worried about anything else. Even then, it's just like wow. Yeah, then it. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> first showing of the film. The first showing of the film during its theatrical run was on October twenty fifth, nineteen seventy eight, in Kansas City, Missouri. Kansas City. My mother was not there, but I'm super jealous that she was able to see this movie in its original theatrical run. 19 years old, watching this movie. 
Man, she got to see a classic. You and I went to go see this movie last year, 2017. My first time seeing it in theaters. Same here. Uh, that was a hell of an experience. I, I, I was scared all over again. I was too. And you know what? I, you know, for the first time, I would probably say... I couldn't even tell you the last time it, it happened for a movie. But I'm, I remember watching it and, you know, the the jack-o'-lantern, you see it. The, the music, the, the famous music hits... And my hair is standing up. I have goosebumps. That's what this movie means to me. And be able to see it inside of a theater, it was, it was such a dream come true. 39 years after its initial release, and here I am finally able to get to see it in theaters. It was That was one of the greatest honors that I, I've ever had, to be able to see this in theaters. It was such a classic moment for me to see this classic movie. But still, jealous that my mother got to see it in its <laughs> original run. The film takes place on October 31st, 1963, Obviously, when Michael was just six. Mm-hmm. And then also from October 30th to October 31st of 1978. And that was on a Tuesday. Halloween was on a Tuesday, Tuesday in night. 1978. I always find that pretty interesting. It was back when you could stay out late on Halloween. Oh, my God. Remember those know, days? Right? You used to have pillowcases of candy. Now it's like, what, maybe three hours, four hours tops? If you're lucky. If you're lucky, and then... My uh, town's like two hours. Is it two hours? It's two hours, Jesus. yeah. It's like, you gotta run. You gotta sprint to each store. <laughs> That's the unfortunate world that we live in. The movie that Tommy and Lori are watching is The Thing from Another World from 1951. John Carpenter went on to direct The Thing in 1982 interesting the parts of the movie that they show are out of order uh, unless yeah, I know that you, yeah unless you watch the movie or have watched the movie you wouldn't notice it but yeah interesting it's, yeah it, it's shown out of order so we talked about Michael Myers being the boogeyman if to us if he's the boogeyman as far as the series goes uh, he's only he's only a boogeyman one more time and that's in Halloween 4 the return of Michael Myers you think they got the got the ball with not calling him the boogeyman after after this movie you know what? There, there's a lot of balls being dropped in this franchise, yeah. as, as far as I'm concerned. Sure. And, and again, we're going to try to stick to the, to the first one here, but yeah, it, it is. They they definitely dropped the ball. You instill all of this mythos in a character. You build this character up. Doing things like that and and not utilizing that for for further instances of the character. You're just breaking your character down. Uh, that should be common sense. Whether you're writing a book or a comic book or a script, yeah. anything like that, you don't want to. You don't want to take that away from your character, especially if it's one of their strong points. And then, and let's face it, he's supposed to be the epitome of what a boogeyman is. Yeah. So why wouldn't you address him as such? You know, it, it, that totally makes sense. You know, Michael Myers was was never meant to be explained you know john carpenter's intent with the character was that the audience should never be able to relate to him which which is a key that that's something super significant yes i mean no one no one should ever or want to have things in common with a psychotic murderous evil slasher the boogeyman the boogeyman yeah Yeah. i mean i mean unless you aspire to be a boogeyman which times have changed and i wouldn't be surprised these days yeah i hope you wouldn't want to be yeah. but but yeah it's it's just it's it's one of those things where again it was mystery behind michael myers because there yeah, keep in mind at this point there is no family relationship between him and laurie strode it's just you 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 leave the movie 
knowing two things knowing that a michael myers is still alive and b we don't know why he's doing what he's doing what the significance of haddonfield is what the significance of laurie strode is and that was the design some things are just not meant to be explained and that's where john carpenter hit it on the head definitely hit it on the head due to their small budget the prop department had to use the cheapest mask they could find at a costume store and there was actually three different masks that they brought back to the set of the movie. One of them was the Emmett Kelly sad clown done by Don Post. And they were originally going to use this with frizzy red hair. They put frizzy red hair on top of the mask. Okay. And they were going to use it to kind of pay an homage to how he killed his sister because he was in a clown costume. When they tested it out, it appeared pretty demented and creepy, but the one that actually got used was a copy of the Captain James T. Kirk mask <laughs> from Star Trek, circa 1975. They decided to use that, and they bought it for like one or two bucks. They altered the mask quite a bit. They ripped off the sideburns and the eyebrows, and they painted it fish belly white. And then they, the hair, they, they ended up spray painting brown. They cut out the eye holes a little bit more. When they tested that mask, everybody on the crew thought it was way more creepy. And it had this just bout of emotionless to it. So that became the Michael Myers mask. And if you would like your own Michael Myers mask, you can always visit our friends at Darkside Studio. Our friends over at Darkside Studio have fine, high-quality latex masks all year round. So stop on over to Darkside Studio at a societyoffandoms.site slash fandom slash Darkside Studio. And thank you for listening. Now let's get back to the show. I always thought that was a cool idea for some some company like Crayola, and I don't know why they haven't capitalized on this yet, but you always see these limited edition items from Crayola in general. Mm. I always thought that that would be a cool set of Crayolas to have. I don't know how many you would do, but you would name them after colors associated with Halloween stuff. Yeah. And, and for me, the white in the set would be Fishbelly White. As an homage to Halloween the movie. Yeah. So if you're listening, Crayola, I want I want royalties. <laughs> you're not getting them. Probably not. <laughs> you should though. <laughs> this movie was voted the fifth scariest film of all time by Entertainment Weekly. I I can honestly say I don't read very much Entertainment Weekly. I'm I'm with you on that. I'm not saying it's a, a bad publication. The stuff that I have read, it's it's usually pretty interesting, but it, it's a scary movie nonetheless. Clearly, we're talking here in 2018, and, you know, the idea of what scares people has come a very long way and is almost super niche sometimes, but it's still still a scary movie. Still a scary movie. So, prior to the movie, a book was written by Curtis Richards and reveals more of the story behind Michael's rage. The book is obviously very rare. I've never seen it. I have never seen it. That would be something interesting. If we could get a hold of even just a listing maybe on eBay or through our affiliates like uh, Amazon or Alabrice, yeah, we'll definitely throw it on the site. That That's really intriguing. I, what, do you know if that had like an official like connection with the... like? Did he have any connection with the movie? It was or? a it was a book written about the movie to elaborate more about the story of the movie. So yeah, 
I, I would say it would, it would have to be pretty official. John Carpenter was a big fan of the original Canadian slasher film Black Christmas, which happened around 1974. And he asked Bob Clark if he could write a sequel to the film. He did get permission, but obviously that became something much more different with Halloween. So one thing that I always found, one thing that I, I did find intriguing when we uh, were looking at some notes going into this episode was Donald Pleasance seemed to have a lot of creative freedom with the script, it seems. It, it almost seemed like he was right on a lot of them. Maybe that's the reason why he had that. Case in point was the ending with Michael Myers getting up after being shot and, and falling out of a second story window. Gets up and originally it was planned that he was going to have a look of shock on his face and instead... Dr. Loomis. Dr. Loomis, yeah. Sorry. And instead, Donald Pleasance said that the reaction should be a "I knew this would happen," you know, almost like "I told you so" kind of kind of look. And they actually shot both, and they they went ahead and went with Donald Pleasance's opinion and went with the "I told you so." I always found that I found that intriguing because it was it happened a couple of times where Donald Pleasance was like, "You know, we're gonna do this," and they did it, and it just it just seems to work. The man knew his stuff. Maybe maybe this is the reason why. He was the best fit anyways. It's funny you mention that. We'll, we'll address that later. I have a fan theory to for you to address. But okay. Yeah, it, it's, it just seemed like he had a, a really good grasp, a grasp of what his character should, should be. I think it plays off well in, in the entire movie. John Carpenter had previously mentioned at, at some point that he actually based the character of Michael Myers on Yul Brynner's robotic assassin character from Westworld from 1973. Of course, that novel was written by Michael Crichton, who also did Jurassic Park. I found that pretty interesting to take the idea of a boogeyman and base him off of a robotic <laughs> assassin. I, I, you know, I guess that's where you get the, the whole unstoppable force of, of nature element in, in what is Michael Myers. One thing that I've always noticed, or one thing I've always learned when it comes to any kind of fandom of mine is never question the inspiration because you're, you're going to have a hard time making sense of it sometimes. <laughs> Just know that it works. Donald Pleasance actually confessed to John Carpenter that the main reason he even took the part of Dr. Loomis was because of his daughter Angela, who was a musician, and she loved uh, John Carpenter's musical score for his previous movie, Assault on Precinct 13, which came out around 1976. Have you seen the original Assault? Assault on Precinct 13? I unfortunately have not. Awesome, awesome movie. Uh, the remake is pretty good, too. That came out mid-2000s. Yeah, I would say about 10 years ago now. Yeah, about, uh, so, yeah like 2010, yeah. somewhere around there. I know, my, I know John Carpenter is known for his scores, that's for sure. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later here. When you talk about Halloween, you, you, you obviously you think of, especially the original Halloween, you think of John Carpenter, you think of Deborah Hill, but uh, the, another name that is synonymous with it is Mustafa Kai. Originally, he wasn't really interested in, in doing the film at all, but went ahead did anyways based off the uh, enthusiasm of John Carpenter. <laughs> and the money they were asking and for. the money they were asking for. <laughs> and it wasn't until the the numbers came in, the money started pulling in, that's when uh, Akkad saw what Halloween could be. Whether or not I am a fan of what he did with the franchise or not is, is irrelevant. Big part in, in, in getting this movie on the, off the ground, Akkad, you think? Definitely. Yeah. Uh, you know, he gave them the go-ahead. He, he was there to give them the money and the support. 
let's face it, he supported the, the project when no one else would. Another big reason this movie did have so much success was because of, I believe, Greg Allen, the movie critic, and Roger Ebert. Um, Roger Ebert actually rated this four stars. Really? Yes. Basically confessed that he, it scared the scared the shit out of him. And it wasn't until those critics uh, voiced their opinion in publica- national publications that people started actually going to the theater to see this. Originally, they thought the movie was going to bomb. John Carpenter just wrote it off as like, hey, this movie was a dud. I'm going on to my next thing. And then those two reviews hit, and it caught on like wildfire. Everybody had to see this movie. John Carpenter had to create a a fear meter so that Jamie Lee Curtis would know what level of terror she should be exhibiting. Because it was shot out of order. All the scenes were shot out of order. That makes... That's an awesome tool to have. Yeah. That, that's something you don't often hear of in the way of movie <laughs> making, but it makes so much sense, especially if you're doing things out of chronological order. I mean, yeah. Well, you also got a new actress here, too. Very true. Very true. Yeah, be, uh, she she actually did this movie when she was on hiatus from uh, her sitcom, Petticoat Junction, which, again, she didn't like horror stuff to begin with. Yeah. So this this was definitely out of her comfort zone. Some key things they use based off of their the low budget, the stabbing sound effect that you hear throughout the movie is a knife stabbing a watermelon, which I hope they ate afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, the dark lighting comes from necessity. The, the crew didn't have enough money for more lights. Kind of worked out in their favor in this sense. Well, they actually, uh, speaking of lighting, they actually, the cinematography is actually based off of Chinatown from, I believe, That's right. from yeah. 1974, I think, where they used like a burnt orange for, for yeah. daytime shots and then like black black or blackish blue for, for nighttime shots. I wonder where they got their pumpkins from. Seeing that you're in, uh, you're in California. Yeah, and you're, it's not fall. Yeah, you're in California. It's not fall. They definitely had a hard time procuring <laughs> pumpkins. Knowing this, I should go back and, and and again view view the movie with some undivided attention just to see how many pumpkins we actually see over the the course of the movie. There's two I can think of off the top of my head. One gets busted thanks to those jerks. <laughs> Picking on poor Tommy. This movie definitely has a pedigree in pop culture these days. In 2006, it actually got selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. They cited it as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. It also, for a long time, was the longest-running horror franchise in movie history. That actually, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise unseated it. With Leatherface. With Leatherface, which came out in... 2017. 2017. Yep. But uh, as we record this, we are probably a few months away from a brand-new trailer for what is essentially Halloween 9, but is not going to take place in in that, that time frame. Yeah, more or less Halloween... The, the original or the new yeah, well the Halloween new 3. yeah the new Halloween 3 that's what it's uh, as far as story goes yeah, yeah it's supposed to be the new Halloween 3 and that movie will make the Halloween franchise back to being the longest running horror franchise in movie history take that Leatherface <laughs> coming for you so Rob Zombie was connected obviously we know him as the director of the remakes Halloween Halloween 2 from 2007 and 2009 respectively the Halloween and Rob Zombie though were were, were put together even more uh, even before that the bullies as we talked about those jerks picking on Tommy he's gonna get you the boogeyman's coming was actually sampled in the beginning of White Zombie's cover of 
I'm your boogeyman. So that was kind of the first time that Rob Zombie was affiliated with anything Halloween. And, of course, then he went on to direct the two remakes. What did you think of his version of Halloween, Rob Zombie's? The first one, it was... I I liked it a lot. Uh, I know I'm going to sound contradictory here when I say that I love the fact that they the whole backstory behind Michael Myers. And the reason why I say that is because it was clearly meant to pay respect to the original but be its own thing. And that's why I liked it. I liked it a lot. The second one, it just kind of lost. It lost meaning to me. And I think there's a reason why they didn't continue on with the, with the Rob Zombie Halloweens because after that second one, it just it just seemed like it, it died. Uh, what they were doing just didn't work. What they did with Laurie at the end of that movie, just it left me scratching my head and disappointed if you're not familiar with rob zombie as a director you have to understand that blood and gore is going to be a top feature in pretty much every one of his movies almost all of his movies so that was something that you had to expect in in his in his remakes and that's and that's fine i mean it wasn't like there's no blood and gore in the other ones but they're definitely enhanced in in the remakes i'm okay with that it, it it worked for what it what he was trying to do in the first one. The second one just fell off. I, the whole visions again, the connection with between him and Laurie. It was like it was like they took Halloween the, the original Halloween one and and then Halloween four and kind of put them together with the whole connection between brother and sister in that in that sense. And I just I didn't get it after that. So, but overall. I I still go back and watch them. The first one especially more so. I thought it was it was a very fair and and nicely put together tribute to a classic. Never was going to live up to it, and I don't think it was ever supposed to. No, I don't think it was supposed to either. And, and for those fans out there that thought it was it should or was going to, man, you're you're you're, you're thinking of the project all the wrong way. Well, you know, it's like it's like if I had the opportunity and and. As you guys listen to the show more, you'll, you'll get to know that my biggest fandom is Disney. And, you know, it's crazy talking about horror here. And, <laughs> and it's like it's like if I took Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and I redid it. I'm not there to try to outdo what Walt Disney and his team did. Because, quite frankly, I don't think I can. I know it's, I can It's impossible. Yeah. You know, he, he. it's a classic movie. That's kind of the same sense here. You, you take, you take a, a, a classic movie... And, and what uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill did. And all you're doing is paying respect to it. That's all you can do at this point. You're not going to top it. And I hate to be that that person because I, I really do despise those people. Like, oh, never be as good as the original. But there are some things where you just, you can't. You can't. There's there's just no way. Because the difference between that movie and, and, and the 1978 movie, which we're talking about, is the mystery. The mysteriousness behind Michael Myers doesn't exist in 2007 as it did in 1978 and that's the biggest part of it because you have no idea yeah because you have no again you as as this movie's ending you know i try try to put yourself in that in, in the shoes of somebody watching in 1978 and you have no idea what you just saw in the sense of michael myers other than the fact that he is indeed the boogeyman. According to Don Post Jr., who's the president of Don Post Studios, the famous California mask-making company, they were originally approached by the filmmakers about getting a custom mask made for 
what would become Michael Myers. Post Studios turned them down because they basically said it would be too expensive to produce something like that from scratch. Don Post Jr. makes it sound like this happens to them a lot, which I'm, I'm sure it does. So they turned them down and they were actually offered points by the film company, by Mustafa Akkad and, and company. Points meaning percentage points in, in the franchise in order for them to use the their one of their masks. Don Post Sr. turned them down. He, he didn't want anything to do with it. And they ended up using one of his masks anyway in the William Shatner mask. Obviously, they altered the hell out of it. <laughs> but uh, they still offered him points and he wouldn't do it. But four years later, they actually commissioned them and they agreed and they did all of the masks for Halloween 3 season of the witch I thought that was pretty interesting yeah I I don't know yeah I don't know that I agree with Don Post not taking points I mean whether it was going to be a huge success or not I still would have took it you know because you never know hell if you had a uh, middle name of Aubrey would you be a a psycho killer too kind of a lame name (laughs) You know what? You know what this reminds me of? What's that? John Wayne. Do you know why? I know who he is. I'm not too familiar with his. Going with. His real name is Marion. Marion. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's just you think about like the the classic sentiment of what John Wayne is or what John Wayne is supposed to be. Right. He sounds a lot less intimidating with the name Marion. I think it's the same thing here with Aubrey. Like I would go through the same frame of mind. Like. <laughs> His middle name's Aubrey. How tough could he be? Yeah. So Michael Aubrey Myers is his name. So for years after the movie's release, John Carpenter would always be approached by people telling him how horrified they were by Michael Myers' grotesquely disfigured face. And the, the only time you really see his face is when Laurie pulls his mask off for a moment towards the end of the film. But actually all you see is the ordinary face of the actor which is Tony Moran in that shot and it's perfectly normal except for a small knife wound that was inflicted by Lori during their struggle in the closet and that was created using special effects makeup coupled with that the only blood you see in the movie is when Judith Myers is killed when Lori discovers the dangling body of Bob Sims and the laid out body of Annie Brackett and then there's the body of the man Michael Myers killed for his clothes after Loomis makes the phone call along the railroad track and then you also see a one more time on Lori's hand and arm after escaping Michael but you have all those people coming up to John Carpenter talking about how how much more blood and and like (laughs) grotesque grotesquely Michael Myers face was this can all be attributed to the theater of the mind Uh, and for those of you who are not familiar it's this is when basically your mind plays tricks on you you see stuff that isn't there it's suggested by the way the media is presented to you, mm-hmm. and then your mind just kind of runs wild with it. And so it's always interesting to, to hear people's points of view or recollections of movies they saw, especially horror movies, because more often than not, you're going to get the version that their mind went wild with. Yeah. And that's always, always an interesting thing. I've watched this movie tons of times. Yeah, I, I can't I can't speak for his face because you know something like that. It, you're, you're watching the boogeyman in action this mm-hmm. whole time. Yeah, when he does get unmasked, I was just shocked. I, I I didn't you know I noticed that his face wasn't disfigured or anything like that. I was just like, holy shit, that's what he looks like. Yeah. So for me, the face wasn't an issue, but the blood for a long time, I thought there was a lot more blood, and, and part of it is that uh, you know the sound effect mm-hmm. of, of the watermelon being 
being cut with a knife, stabbed with a knife, and associating that noise with him stabbing people in the movie. Right. I guess that plays into the theater of the mind here because I, I too, fell victim to, to that point of view where sure. I thought there was a hell of a lot more blood than there actually was. But in reality, Michael Myers is like the ultimate like, hitman because... Man, he cleans up fast. He does. <laughs> he leaves no traces. And you know what? For someone who doesn't run at all, he gets around pretty quick. Doesn't run. Doesn't talk. He's just. Uh, he's he's such. A, he's like the ultimate stalker. Is what he is. <laughs> P.J. Scholes was uh, or Linda in the movie was killed in a scene where her shirt was open. Uh, she was just got done uh, doing doing the deed. She strangled with a telephone cord because of that. An alternate version was shot for the trailer and publicity shots where she was wearing a bathrobe. I guess my question is: Is it really? Not, I mean, if you're you're yeah, you're on a budget. I mean. How about for your trailer? You just don't put that in there. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I guess that's like a like an aesthetic, uh, like a a preference call. Yeah, I I don't know. I can't really speak on that too much. I I don't know that. Other than I mean, obviously you want you want uh, your trailer to be a highlight reel. I know that's how the that's the attitude towards them these days. But I would assume back then when the the original trailers got released or the trailer yeah. got released, that you, you did have to have enough in there to, to sway your audience to come and see it. So maybe that he just felt that it was a selling point. As another homage to Alfred Hitchcock, the character Dr. Sam Loomis, who's Michael Myers' psychiatrist, uh, shares a name with Marion Crane's secret lover in Psycho. And coincidentally, Marion Crane was played by Jamie Lee Curtis's mother, Janet Leigh. And Annie is played by actress Nancy Kyes, who was credited as Nancy Loomis. Uh, the name Loomis was also used in Scream, the original Scream, 1996. It's kind of a hell of a pedigree for that name, Loomis. <laughs> PJ Souls actually went to a screening of the movie after it was released, and she sat in the fourth row of a regular audience. And she was very amused when, during her nude scene, in line of, do you see anything you like? A male audience member in front yelled out, hell yeah, I do, unaware she was right behind him. And Dennis Quaid, who P.J. Souls was dating at the time, asked her if, if he wanted him to confront the man. And she said no. She declined. She was just too amused by the experience. Quaid was originally supposed to play Linda's boyfriend, but scheduling conflicts prevented this. Other than, other than the obvious that happens, how much, if any, difference do you see Dennis Quaid making at this point in time in his career playing playing her boyfriend. I can only picture older Dennis Quaid at this point. <laughs> and you know what? The stern I, look on his I face. I was going to say, I, I don't remember too, too many horror-related Dennis Quaid movies. The only one I could think of that comes to mind right off the top of my head is Horseman. You ever watch Horseman? I have never seen Horseman, no. That's a pretty decent flick. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a horror crime drama where, okay. he, where he plays a detective and he's after like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So oh, sweet. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty, pretty decent movie. I know there's some kind of alien type movie that he was in. I Yeah, but but I know what you're talking about, but that's not a horror flick. It's not horror. No. So I don't I didn't even see it, so Yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I, I when it comes to when it comes to Bob, he, it, <laughs> who cares at this point? Yeah, you know? yeah. 
He's uh, he's one of those characters you and I know this very well. He was he was written in there to die. That, that's so. It's do you do you want to see Dennis Quaid die on, on film? Then sure, he works. But <laughs> <laughs> other than that, it doesn't really make it much of a difference. So the score to this movie was actually composed by John Carpenter, and he did it in about four days. And he credits his dad with inspiration. His dad taught him the rare five four time signature, and that's what he used to to compose the. The main theme. He originally screened the the movie for a female film critic without this music. She didn't find it scary at all. Really? Yeah. And uh, who is this lady? <laughs> I, I you know what? I couldn't find her name. <laughs> but so yes, she she gives the movie a negative review. Said it wasn't scary. Roughly a week later, he catches her, and he had put the music to the movie, and he had to rewatch it. And she completely changed her mind about the movie. Told him that it was one of the scariest movies she had ever seen in her entire life. Just goes to show you how much of a difference the right music can make for for any movie. And you know it. This one too, and this is another reason why we talk about this one. This one only. This one had. All of the music and sound effects of, of true horror. I mean, it was—it's—it's it's the only one to have that—that—that—that that screeching noise when Michael Myers appears out of nowhere. I remember, no matter what time of day or when I watch it, the—the the very first time that you hear that noise, which is in the first scene when the lights go off uh, in, in Judas's room, and you hear that noise, and it's like, this sends chills down your spine every single time. It's a lost art that wasn't, wasn't done in the other movies. The build-up, chase music, that, that right there, too, that you anticipate, because you, you know something's gonna happen, but it, it just, it picks up a little bit, and man, those don't get talked about enough. You, you know, obviously, the, the iconic score, which to this day is, is for me, is, is one of the greatest scores in movies, and I would put that against any score, see how it competes. Obviously, it deserves, it deserves the, the, the hype that it, it gets, but those other factors, too, that were done just for this movie, it heightens up already intense moments. It makes sense that she looks back at that film and says holy shit now now it's scary i mean it to me it would already be scary but i can see her point when it's happening in real time and there's there's no build-up there's nothing to add to it it's just actors on a screen now now it's actors on a screen but that music adds to what they're already feeling and now you as a viewer can feel it too just by listening to that music alone He credits the soundtrack being performed by the Bowling Green Philharmonic Orchestra. There is no such orchestra. It's actually an homage to where John Carpenter grew up in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And there's numerous references to his childhood hometown. Uh, the performance of the film's musical score is credited, obviously. The orchestra is actually Carpenter and some of his musical friends. And in one scene, the subtitle depicts the location as Smith's Grove, Illinois. Smith's Grove is actually a small town of about 600 people, located about 15 miles north of Bowling Green on I-65. There's also numerous references in Halloween to 
street names that are major roads in the greater Bowling Green area. So just a, a fun little callback to uh, the, the roots of John Carpenter there. The only other piece of music I could think of in this movie is when he's driving, when Michael Myers is driving and he's behind Lori, he's driving after them. They're playing Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult, which is kind of foreshadowing, <laughs> but a little interesting tidbit there with uh, the Blue Oyster Cult. Obviously very iconic music in and of itself. Uh, one of the classic rock tracks from from that time and again that that is also pretty timeless music it has been utilized all over the damn place Tell me about this Halloween video game from 1983. Oh man, I'm not familiar. I'm I am nowhere near the gamer that my brother Matt here is. <laughs> I don't own this one yet, but uh, I am looking for it. So, what system did it come out for? It came out for the Atari 2600. I, I did have an Atari 2600, but See, I, I had no I have no recollection of this game existing. So you know what kind of crap was released for the Atari 2600. Oh yeah, I own some of that crap. <laughs> You know, we, we hear, we, we know about E.T. being a load of garbage. G.I. Joe's another one. G.I. Joe's another one. They weren't alone as far as, <laughs> as far as great franchises. Those are great franchises, right? Yeah, oh yeah. E.T. was obviously an iconic movie from the 80s. Halloween, obviously an iconic movie from the 70s. And it makes sense. Why not add on to it via the use of video games? Totally makes sense. I'm all about it. Wizard Video is the company that did... Halloween, the video game. The game was released in 1983. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with video game history and, and, and the significance of 1983, there was a little thing called the video game crash of 1983. And real quick here, what that is, is that there was a a huge drop in sales and video game releases due to an overabundance of video games being released and put in stores, customers not buying them. Because, again, they were crap. So what you had then is Wizard Video had to cut costs. Once the game was released, they they could no longer afford a lot of things. They had to, they had to cut, cut costs, very much like the original movie here, where they had to cut costs of some things. The, the way they did it, though, just didn't work. The What they decided to do was they took the their labels and said, we can't afford to make this anymore. So what they did is that they took the Atari 2600 cartridge, which is just a black cartridge, and they took a little strip, a sticker, and they put it on there, and they wrote in orange marker, Halloween. (laughs) 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 I am not kidding you. That that is the more common. If you're going to find this game, that is the more common one you're going to find. That is how they released the game. Somebody wrote Halloween in a Sharpie, and put it in a box for you. <laughs> the game does have the score in Atari twenty six hundred version of it, and it does it it does have the title Halloween. However, there is never a mention of Michael Myers nor Laurie Strode. It is just the mass killer, the mass psycho killer, and the babysitter. I don't know why they don't have the names. I don't know if John Carpenter saw this and said. You're not putting my characters in your shitty game. <laughs> I don't know. And what you do, you basically you run around in this house, and 
apparently you're babysitting a multi- multiple kids, not just Tommy in this sense. Well, what kind of babysitter would you be if you only had one kid to babysit? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and you go around and you try to save these kids, and you you have like multiple different rooms, and you go from the left side or the right side. Apparently, Michael Michael, Michael Myers doesn't like the ends; he just likes the middle rooms. <laughs> <laughs> and you just take these kids, and you have them follow you to those rooms and avoid Michael Myers at all costs. Who, by the way, is walking; he's not running, so he's extremely easy to avoid. It's it's bad. What is fun though? He <laughs> there's a little bit of taboo here because you know we we talk about things that are uh, taboo, and killing kids is, I'd imagine, be one of them. Michael Myers does kill children in this game; he can at least. And by doing so, if he stabs the kids or if he stabs the babysitter, they automatic decapitation, and there is blood like snakes shooting out of their necks. Wow! And that's that's how you die. <laughs> that I have to see this now. This is a, it's a must own for anybody with an Atari twenty six hundred. Yeah, very very fun piece of merchandise there. I just love that strip though. Like it's just right Halloween on it, and uh, I think that's okay. That's that's nuts, but it definitely speaks to to the <laughs> to to what that video game crash was all about back in nineteen eighty three. Back in 1996, Terry Gross interviewed Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, uh, obviously two well-known movie critics, especially here in Chicago. Yes, strong Chicago roots. He did this in front of a live audience for a fundraiser for the radio station WBEZ. He asked them about the scariest movie they, they had ever seen. And Roger Ebert mentions how the first Halloween, the movie that we're paying plenty of fandom here to tonight, was extremely scary and recounted how when Gene Siskel saw it at a local, local movie theater, he was so scared that he took a cab home even though he only lived two blocks from the movie theater. Gene then recounted how that when he did get home, he went straight to the shower and pulled the curtain back to see if anyone was there. I've done that. That there, If you need proof of how scary this movie was at the time, I mean, there you go. For those two who, obviously, they're, again, they're critics and they're, they're very opinionated critics at that. That they are. You know, Roger Ebert, when he was alive, very infamous to a lot of people for his points of view on a lot of movies. But he rated this four stars. And so not only did he think it was a good movie, obviously it was affected if they were both effective, if uh, they were both scared out of their minds. Here's a little interesting tidbit for you. Matt and I are both huge wrestling fans. And back in 1993, Eddie Gilbert was performing for a hardcore Japanese wrestling promotion called WING, which stands for Wrestling International New Generation, under the mask using the name and the gimmick of Michael Myers. And his brother Doug, Doug Gilbert at the time, was also there in the promotion doing a gimmick as Freddy Krueger. From A Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> this, this gimmick was actually first used in the Memphis Territory by their father, Tommy Gilbert. I don't know of any footage of any of this. I would really love to see yeah. if there's any Memphis footage of, of Tommy Gilbert dressed up as Michael Myers. That would be some really interesting stuff to see. As far as the, the stuff from Wing in 1993, I'm sure it's floating out there somewhere, somehow. Somebody's got to have it. Yeah, somebody's got to have that. I'm intrigued, for sure. Halloween wasn't the first script that John Carpenter wrote uh, which in which he had a mysterious killer stalking and killing a specific group of people around 1977 John Carpenter wrote a script called Meltdown and it was about a group of scientists exploring a nuclear plant when one night all of the workers in it started to disappear and later in that script 
it's revealed that they were killed by some psychopath who had snuck into the plant a long time ago and who believes that he is sent by God to destroy the plant. Now most of the script was just the killer stalking and killing all the scientists in various ways using traps and weapons such as a flamethrower and a circular saw. And the ending of the script was very dark. There was only two people that survived escaping from the plant before it explodes and creates a huge disaster which leaves most of the California, most of California infected with so much radiation that nothing will live there for half a million years. And just like Halloween, it had its playing of Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult associated with it. Carpenter's Meltdown script had the song A Wider Shade of Pale by Procol Harum playing at one part when the bodies of the plant workers are found by the main characters and they realize the killer's plan. And also at the ending after the plan explodes, Meltdown was later rewritten in the mid-1990s and turned into a version of Die Hard but in a nuclear plant. That kind of a thriller in which it was going to start Dolph Lundgren in a very dark role but eventually production on the film was cancelled. I would love to see that script. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how I feel about Dolph Lundgren... <laughs> playing i mean I'm, I'm not saying he couldn't pull it off if you're if you're not familiar he did the first version of the punisher yeah which that was that was kind of dark for for what it was or for that that time in in society and movies i thought that was pretty interesting i think he pulled it off i think it's one of the the more underrated versions of the punisher that are out there mm. but yeah that would be definitely interesting to see perusing the internet you do come across quite a few fan-made films Little homages to our beloved Halloween. We will have a, a list, at least a short list, on the website, which is available at a society of site. That's dot S-I-T-E. For those of you interested in checking out more information associated with this episode. But along with fan films, there are also fan theories. This is a very beloved franchise that has been through its own set of ups and downs over the years. There's a myriad of different fan theories out there. I would like to share a few with you. I got, I'm got. i going to ask you, I want your opinion on, on some of these. Okay. Number one, Michael Myers is evil itself. Like the physical manifestation of evil. You know, science has no way of explaining him. And it's kind of a metaphor for the force of nature behind murder or every evil action in the world. He can't be killed because he'll just reemerge somewhere else if he does. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about Michael Myers being evil incarnate? That was, I think that would be the, the true original uh, version of Michael Myers. I totally agree with that. He, I think, again, we represent the boogeyman. That is what the boogeyman is, isn't that, it? Yeah, that's, well, that's what the boogeyman should be, yeah. Right. So yeah, I totally agree with that. The next fan theory I want to ask you about is Michael Myers has CIP. For those who are not familiar, CIP is congenital insensitivity to pain with anhydrosis. In other words, he can't feel pain. Well, that makes sense. It, it certainly does seem that way, but I, I don't know if I buy that completely. Because if he didn't feel pain... When he fell, after being shot, when he fell, I mean, obviously he gets up and he leaves. You know, we, we know that much, but yeah. I, I think it would have played out a little bit differently. The same thing like when he was shot. You, you look at the, when he he clearly, like if he didn't feel it, it would, it would be much more like there would be no physical movement of his body. It would just, you know, I mean, I... Well, does that necessarily mean he's bulletproof? Or just doesn't. I mean, if 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 you can't feel pain, I don't know, maybe this is being like being, I guess, ignorant to the term. 
But I guess it's not necessarily, for me, it's not necessarily mean you're bulletproof. It's just, so the body's still going to take a hit. Like, if you fall out of a two-story bedroom window, the body's still going to, you know, you might be, uh, you might lose your breath for a second or what have you. You know, you might even have broken bones. It's just, as far as the pain goes, you don't feel it. The body still goes through the trauma. But I, I guess I'm, I'm picturing, like, Luke Cage here, where it's just, like, bouncing off, like, like that's it. Yeah, I, I, th- <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, okay. Have you ever watched the remake of Mr. Deeds with Adam Sandler? Yes. Okay, do you remember the part where he's talking about his... When he was a kid, he had the episode where he got left out in the snow, mm-hmm. and, and so his foot is black. Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's dead. Go ahead, do what you want. And the guy takes a poker to it, and he's just poking it, and there's, he's not moving or anything. I relate to that. Okay. I relate to that because I'm diabetic. I have neuropathy. Essentially, that's like a paralyzation of nerves. And so in my feet, I don't always feel things that I should feel. So there are times where I will step on things like a tack or something sharp and i don't know that i've done that and you're lucky and that's so, yeah so i mean it doesn't happen all the time because yeah. it, again my nerves are shot but they're like i talking to you right now i'm sitting next to you and i don't always feel my feet so i, I guess can, you're not lucky in that sense <laughs> i can definitely relate to that sure at least in that manner yeah i mean and, and when he gets stabbed with in the eye what was that with uh one of the fireplace Yeah, they're with the pokers. Pokers, there you go. I, I guess if he had CIP, he would just be like, yoink, yoink, right You're Right. That, at least that's how I'm thinking you know, of he, it. I, I could be wrong He here. clearly falls to the ground. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, guess, I, I agree. I, thinking of that way, I guess I'm not fully sold on it either. All right, here's another one. Okay. This one's pretty interesting. Michael Myers exists solely to spread fear. Kind of like a supernatural situation going on. He's like imbued with these powers that in order to, you know, they're powers that in order to continually spread fear to humans, that's what, you know, like that's what the powers are for. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that? It's a pretty interesting concept. I I guess that would kind of go along with being a boogeyman. Being a boogeyman. He's only there to spread fear. Yeah, I can see that. Why Haddonfield, though? Why, why go to Haddonfield? What's... Maybe there was a lack of fear there, and it, it was just like, I guess it's like an arbitrary place to show up. Like, hey, there's no fear in Haddonfield. I'm going to go make some fear, instill some fear here in the community. There, there, there's an example to go along with this. So after Lori Strode dropped off the key to the house after it was sold, Michael's forced to reappear because Lori was fearless at that point. So he had to come back in order to instill fear all over again. I, you know what? If we're talking about the duties of being a proper boogeyman, yeah, it it does make sense. There, I, I I'm drawing a blank to what these stories, what this, what where, where I where this is from, but it reminds me of an old story of what death is, and death overtook this this town, and he would he or she or it would only come once every so many years. Just to prove a point that death exists, and therefore it would. It came out. It's a small town. Okay. And it would come, and it would take one individual with it, and that individual would now be dead. Therefore, the the rest of the town could live, you know, in happiness and peace, but always know that death is always looming. Kind of reminds me of that, to where fear is is kind of always looming. So 
you hear you have a wholesome Illinois town in Haddonfield, assumingly wholesome. You know, watching a movie, it, it seems very much a small town where people kind of know each other and stuff like that. Yeah, you got your rowdy teenagers and stuff like that, but, you know, that exists everywhere. Here's Michael Myers for one night only. He's going to he's going to put a kibosh to that. He's going to remind you that I guess there are rules to to this life, this happy life that you live. <laughs> he's going to change a lot of lives forever in one night. I really like that concept about you know death, or in this case, it would be Michael Myers showing up once, like once on a certain date every year, yeah. every five years. Every in this ten, case, it'd be fifteen years. So every fifteen years. You know. How much different of a franchise do you think we would have on our hands if if that if that concept was portrayed throughout each of the the sequels? You would have it. Essentially. <laughs> Stephen King's it, yeah. <laughs> Not to bring that up for you, <laughs> yeah, but, 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 but essentially you would have that. I tell you what, if if you have a franchise that has to explain Michael Myers, I like this one better than she's my sister. I need to kill her. Well, why? <laughs> she's my niece i need to kill her okay again why oh because i'm a part of a cult i'm not gonna go into that yeah but yeah i, I like this I, I like this one better where again it's it's the you still never know who michael myers is why why michael myers why why does he wear this mask why is he man-like if that's if that's his only job what is he who is he you know so and, ne- and never answer that question no you're absolutely right so yeah i really like that one how about this one Michael Myers has autism. So keep in mind, he doesn't speak. He's, his behavior is repetitive and uh, somewhat ritualistic. Mm-hmm. He doesn't view people as living beings necessarily. He has trouble with some of his motor skills. And, you know, there's no rudimentary sense of right or wrong, death, life, etc. with this character. He's emotionless. I don't know that I buy this one. There, there. From what we know about autism, yeah, uh, there would have to be some very distinct mannerisms associated with Michael Myers for this to happen. All those that I listed are, are semi good points, but yeah, it's not enough to sway me that he has autism. My only argument for Michael Myers having autism is that. We're talking about something that was made in 1978. The awareness of what autism was back then compared to what it is here in 2018 are two totally different things. Oh, that yeah, that's that's a definite. That's very obvious. Um, so you and I can sit here and and say, oh no, there's no, you know, well not say no way, but that that's not enough evidence. Highly unlikely. Right. Yeah. Because being autistic does not make you a, a killer. Right. You know, but certainly in 1978, not saying that that was the case. I wasn't around 1978, so I couldn't tell you. But certainly that that would probably be a better fit for that genre or for not genre for that era than now. So I, I still I would debunk that theory. But because of, of the, the age gap, we're talking 40 years ago now, I guess there's a possibility that that could ring true a little bit. Here's a typical 1980s point of view here michael myers is triggered by sex you know he walks in on his sister uh, you know when he's a young age one has to think like how often did this happen with him did was it was it a a common (laughs) thing to him like consistently walk in on his sister while she's having sexual experiences for a minute and then there's also obvious the obvious notions during the movie you know there's several of his victims had engaged in sex the night of their deaths so well certainly morality is is a factor in this movie there's there's no doubt about that so i 
I don't. I wouldn't say he's triggered by sex, but certainly it's. I would say he's fully triggered by sex. I should say, but certainly there is something about his actions that engaging in sex generally means. And this is just the 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 movie aspect of it. Generally means that you're going to die. Does that necessarily mean that Michael Myers, the character, is triggered by sex? No. But it just, I see what this, what they mean by this fan theory, and I agree in the sense of movie writing, because there's definitely a lot of morality involved in this. Again, you talk about the lone survivor, and I'm not talking about Samuel Lewis, who is essentially the hunter throughout the movie, but Laurie Strode, or I'm not talking about the kids either, because kids are generally innocent. Laurie Strode, she's the, the all-American good girl. You know, she's the one that's, you know, she's, she's not having, she's the only one out of the, the three girls that doesn't have sex and, or is about to have sex in the movie, I should say. You know, even when talking about uh, going to the dance, you know, she gets super embarrassed by... Uh, she's Again, she's the ultimate wholesome good girl and it only makes sense for you and I as horror fans that she's the one that survives. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> A lot of what happened in this movie that triggered that mentality that that's the girl that survives or that's the person that survives. So... In a sense of the movie, I say yes. As far as the character goes, which is what we're talking about here, no, Michael Myers is not triggered by sex. No. I got two more for you. These these are probably my favorites out of out of the ones that I'm going to discuss here okay. on this episode. This, this, one, <laughs> this one is a little complicated because if you do enough comment viewing online, there's a lot of people that just kind of take this fan theory Okay. At face value, and they don't understand like the the thought behind it. So Michael Myers is Chucky, like Chucky the possessed Charles Lee Ray. Charles Lee Ray from the from the <laughs> Child's Play movies. That's that's the fan theory here, and and the reason I say it's 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 kind of taken the wrong way by mm-hmm. a lot of people. Yeah, is because everybody hears that phrase. Michael Myers is Chucky. And immediately they think, well, there, there's no fucking way. He's not a doll. <laughs> That's not what it is. Right. The, this whole fan theory is based on the idea that Michael Myers is an entity that is possessed by someone through voodoo. Right. That's the fan theory, folks. I feel weird having to explain that because I, I think it should be... Like, if you're going to say something like, Michael Myers is Chucky... You should know what the fuck I'm talking about. Yeah. But so yeah, it, 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 in in its <laughs> essence, that's what I'm trying to say. That yeah, Charles Lee Ray at some point possessed Michael Myers. And if we do this, if we if we say this is a legitimate thing, that makes all of the Child's Play movies prequel yeah. to to Halloween. So is it feasible? Yeah, I guess. Is it a stretch? Jesus, yes, it's a stretch. Yeah. Um, It'd be, it's an interesting stretch. It is though. a really interesting really like stretch. That, that, yeah. That's why I picked this one out. I, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, think, I don't know if I could buy that. Let's let's think ahead here really quick about some of the sequels to Halloween. Yeah, and, and how the cult aspect oh, gets in, gets involved in this. If we must. How much does this change, this idea of a cult being involved, change for you if it involves this fan theory? It definitely helps it. I, I, I yeah, I, I see where you're going with it. Yeah, I, I that that definitely works a hell of a lot more than what we ended up getting. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> for damn sure. So yeah, I'm all for Michael Myers being Chucky, or Charles Lee Ray, as it were. 
Yes. For those who don't understand. <laughs> that is one big giant doll. Michael <laughs> uh, and this, this last one here. So earlier in the episode, we mentioned that Sam Loomis, Dr. Sam Loomis, shares a name with a character in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho from 1960. So the theory here is that the character of Dr. Sam Loomis, the psychiatrist of Michael Myers, is actually the same character Sam Loomis from Psycho. And we all know, you know, earlier we had mentioned the homage to Psycho that John Carpenter right. had had did. But it would kind of like it would kind of have to play out like this, for for in order for this to be true, it would have to play out like this. After failing to save his girlfriend in Psycho, he decides to combat psychosis by becoming a psychiatrist and essentially starting a new life in Illinois in Haddonfield, where he ends up taking care of Michael Meyer. Now, if that's not enough to sink your teeth into, would he would have to feel that stopping Michael Myers would be the redemption for not being able to stop Norman Bates. I mean, man, what a what a life he's lived. <laughs> right? I, I mean, <laughs> there's multiple times where you and I have talked during this episode where you, you completely feel, and I get, that Loomis is a broken man. Yeah. So... That's not too far-fetched, though. Yeah, I, I think that plays well with this fan theory, where yeah. he is truly a broken man, and he had, shit, he must have lived a hell of a life in order to be this way. I mean, he shoots Michael Myers, Michael Myers falls to what should be his death, and he just gets up and leaves, and Loomis's response is, I knew this would happen. Yeah. So, it's like old news to him. Yeah. That's a pretty scary thought when you put it into perspective. I, I mean, just... I know, I know. As a doctor, he feels responsible, but let, let's face facts. If you, if you, if you have some a patient like Michael Myers, you just pretty much like the hell with this. Let it be somebody else's problem. <laughs> but he's so attached to him. He's so attached to the fact he he feels responsible, almost like almost like a father figure to Michael in in, in a weird way. There's no love there, but it's. He feels responsible that he has to protect the rest of the world from this monster. From this monster. And it totally makes sense. that The, the whole Psycho and Norman Bates situation totally makes sense that, you know, maybe that responsibility comes from having lost somebody already because you fail to protect from another monster. So, yeah, that that one's that one's pretty good. That, like that, that one. one's my favorite. Yeah, uh, I like that one a lot. So as we wrap it up here, I just want to say... I really enjoyed doing this episode for for one. I, I love talking Halloween. It's one of those movies for me that has stood the test of time. Again, I I'm pushing thirty, so we're we're talking twenty five years of this movie being in my life personally. It's defined me as a horror fan, uh, but also just as a, as a as a movie goer and somebody that also enjoys writing. It's it's one of those. It's the ultimate examples of good storytelling great storytelling and what i loved about it too is that you didn't have to do too much to these characters you just let them let them do it organic michael myers was so organic and that's where this movie stands out to me because again you have this this mysterious character that you don't know what he's why he's doing what he's doing you have you have no idea what he's going to do next you have no idea the significance of haddonfield illinois or the, the significance of Laurie Strode, and that was what it was meant to be. He was, and to me, forever will be, the boogeyman. No matter how old I get, pushing 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 
Hopefully I live a long life. To the day I die, Michael Myers is going to always be my boogeyman because he has always, since I was six years old, scared the ever-living crap out of me, left me with chills up and down my spine. If he was a real person, as crazy as he is, I would be a huge fanboy of his, <laughs> even then. A friend of the show, Darkside Paul from Darkside Studio Masks, he, just about every year for Halloween, he has some sort of little haunted yard, haunted house set up. It's definitely a sight to see. At his residence. There was a year where uh, a mutual friend of ours was working for him as one of the characters in his yard, and he was dressed up as Michael Myers. I happened to to go over there to hang out and shoot the shit with those guys. Pulling up in the car to the residence, you know, we we parked probably like maybe half a block away, and walking up to the residence seeing him dressed as Michael Myers was enough to get my heart pumping. <laughs> and it's broad daylight. Yeah. You know, and, and that that is merely one instance of just how this movie has affected me throughout my lifetime. It's It's been with me for roughly 35 years. I'm pushing 40 now. Like I said, last year, you and I got to see it on the big screen for the first time. What an honor that was. That was, that was so awesome to be able to do that. The moment it got an Announced and it was available. Uh, tickets were available. You know, I jumped. I jumped at the opportunity to go see something like that on the big screen, as it as it was meant to be seen. Uh, and I I wasn't disappointed. Uh, it scared me all over again. It is one of those movies that whether whether you define it as a as the definition of a genre or a really a really good example of a genre, it transcends the genre of horror. It is much more than a horror film. Yeah, it's a suspenseful film. It's a it's a thriller. It it has you're you're absolutely right. Its storytelling is so organic and so well done. You can't help deny, but on some level, enjoy this movie. Whether it's scaring the shit out of you, or you're just intrigued the entire time by this entity known as Michael Myers. I agree. It it definitely stands the test of time. Clearly, the the movie movie going public who frequent the internet find you know, take stock some stock into this because again it does have a a ninety three percent on Rotten Tomatoes right now very high rating for a film yeah yeah you can't you can't help deny the effect it has had on not only the horror genre but the movie going experience and as we, we we filmed this as you mentioned earlier we're just a few months away from the newest halloween film it's been reported that this is probably going to be the last one of the series you ready to say goodbye to michael i i am it, it it's it's been a long strange ride and and and, and often <laughs> yeah and oftentimes you know we have become disappointed time and time again for one reason or another with with the franchise yeah i hope it goes out with a bang i I hope it it mends a lot of wounded moviegoers yeah we just leave it we you know we leave we leave them lie do something different you know there (laughs) that that is a a whole nother opinion for a whole nother podcast but yeah hollywood needs to come up with more original stuff stop bringing back like what they would consider safe bets Nostalgia is great. It, it, it definitely has a purpose, and and being the collector that I am, nostalgia is is huge for me. I'm, I'm not even gonna lie, it is. But I agree. I I'm ready to say goodbye to Michael. 
I am in in the sense that it's time to put his story to to rest. You know, again, we talked about the original Halloween and how great that movie is. We also made mention of the disappointment of the rest of the series. There's definitely some good parts. You know, it wasn't like it was one great movie and the rest was downhill, but roller coaster would, would be the right term for it. If we're going to go back to the, the roots and go back to where we started in 1978 and finish it off there, or at least finish it off in that timeline, I'm, I'm good with that. I, I like that, that Jamie Lee Curtis, whether she likes horror movies or not, is giving the fans closure, even though she thought she did before. <laughs> uh, giving fans closure and... I love that John Carpenter is part of this this movie. It's very important. That's a huge huge part of it. I'm I'm ready for to, to close that chapter. You know, I I will forever love Halloween. I will forever love Michael Myers for what he is as a film icon. But I'm ready to to say goodbye and move on to the next great character, whatever that may be. In closing, I just want to say thank you for doing the episode with me. Thank you um, for having me. I can't think of any better way to celebrate a 40-year anniversary for a movie that we both love and adore and, and a franchise that that obviously we're interested in and big fans of. If you love this episode, we have others, and you can, you can check them out over at our website, www.com a society of fandoms dot site and you can check out all of our other fandom episodes there so until next time happy anniversary michael You can say whatever you want. (laughs) Hey, Mike.